0: yep
1: welcome to the 69th episode of it wasn't me a true crime podcast where we chat about murder i'm mercedes and cindy sadly couldn't be with us this week so i invited a very special guest let me introduce you to my son Chaz. i hope you find him half as entertaining as i do say hello Chaz.
0: hello it wasn't me family
1: aww Thanks so much, everybody, for listening to us last week when Cindy told us about the execution of Sandy Razo by her abusive ex-boyfriend's girlfriend.
0: Forewarning, this show is often horrifying and graphic. We do use offensive language, so if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, we are passionate and always have been about true crime, but I must warn you, we might make a joke and laugh during this podcast we probably will
1: want to learn more about us visit our website at it wasn't me truecrime.com to find links to our social media pages we drop a new episode every friday morning so be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you don't miss out thanks for listening and if you are even slightly entertained by our southern charm please leave us a five-star rating along with a comment and if you know if not you think we suck please reach out to us let us know what you think we can do to improve Also, spread the word and recommend our podcast to your friends and family. And if you hate us, recommend us to your enemies. So what's up, Chaz? How are you doing?
0: I'm good. How are you, mother?
1: Oh, I am super excited to uh, be with this. You know, I asked Kobe to uh, do this with me and he said no.
0: Well, it's an honor to be here.
1: Well, thanks. And Cindy's like, I think Chaz should do it. So there we go.
0: Who knows, maybe uh, maybe one day I can present my own.
1: Yeah, maybe you can have me on a, uh, you know, I can be like the famous person that draws people to your podcast, you know. Anyway, I have a pretty good murder for you this week.
0: Yeah, please do tell.
1: Well, and it's so, you know, the universe works in such mysterious ways because the whole time I'm researching this, I'm like going chaz is around the same age as these people and you know i know he runs he runs around around here and this area is no different from indianapolis where we're going this week so this is going to be good
0: this is going to be good for us Ooh, indianapolis that's fun
1: yeah you know i was born there right Anyway, I want to tell you about my keyword search for this episode, because you know me, I'm back here a lot doing research on murders. And I actually have a lot of murders sitting in the wings right now to research and to present, but they really did not fit my mood. Like I need something a little more lighthearted. Like, can we even say lighthearted when we're talking about murder?
0: Oh. Eh, not really but yeah,
1: not really but you know um I'm like okay I need something kind of a little bit uplifting so I looked up prison escapes by convicted murderers because what could be more lighthearted than a good old-fashioned prison escape anyway believe it or not there are a lot of those and I ended up finding an interesting one so uh, I'm gonna just let you know it's been on a lot of crime shows I think it was even featured maybe in an episode of Criminal Minds and I'll name some of those later.
0: Oh, we're going a little mainstream this week. Well, okay. yeah, I
1: always try to mention those when those come out, but this is, this is a long one. It will be a two-parter. So I don't know if you're going to finish it out with me and what will happen next week, but you know, you'll have to be sure to tune in wherever you are for it. Okay. So I'm going to start by reading you from the part of the Chicago Tribune, which is uh, where I found the newspaper article that got me hooked on this one. And this article was written by Emily S. Akembong, published in the Chicago Tribune on December 22nd, 2008. Indiana Fugitive Captured, Woman Convicted of Two Fatal Shootings. A woman convicted of two murders who escaped from an Indiana prison in August was captured in Chicago just hours after the television show America's Most Wanted profiled her case, authorities said. Chicago police received an anonymous tip Saturday that Sarah Jo Pender, was in an apartment in the 2200 block of West Farwell Avenue on the far north side. Tactical officers found her there and took her into custody without incident, police said, adding they did not know how long she had been living in Chicago or whether anyone here was helping her. Pender, 29, had been on the lam for nearly five months, and Indiana authorities said they consider her armed and extremely dangerous.
0: What is the, uh, what is the lam?
1: It's on the run. Okay. In, on the All run right. from cops. So she escaped from prison and was living on the lamb, like hiding out for five months. That's kind of interesting, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. She looks a, a little bit like Lord Farquaad <laughs> from from the shrek. Yes, series. she
1: does. That picture does. I'll be sure to put that on the on the website. She does look like Lord Farquaad there. She does, she's um a very uh statuesque woman like she's a bigger woman I think she's 5'11 or something and um but she's tall and she's got good bone structure I mean she's pretty and um and a very like she's not a great beauty but she's very pretty
0: anyway I'm
1: gonna start this that article was written in 2008 so I'm gonna rewind to 2000 and introduce you to a couple 26 year old Trisha Norman and 25 year old Andrew Cataldi I'll call him Drew These two lovebirds met while they were locked up in a Carson City, Nevada correctional facility. She was locked up for forging checks and he was locked up for manufacturing and distributing meth. I did find an article that was, that featured her daughter, like many years later, her daughter, you know, her, she had three children who uh, i guess the dad walked out when the children were four and two and the parents were meth addicts so these kids were sent to live with their grandmother's just an awful situation you know so when she was incarcerated for uh taking checks from her mom like you know so the daughter's like she stole from my grandma to feed us
0: (laughs) yeah that's yeah that's uh quite the household
1: yeah pretty traumatic right
0: yeah i could I can only imagine.
1: Well, I'm glad that you never had to live like that. Me too, that I never had to. Trisha Norman was incarcerated and the dad walked out. Like he was never in the picture after they they were, you know, two. And they never heard from their mom again either because she, along with that jailhouse beau, her boyfriend Drew absconded from the correctional facility in Nevada, where they made their way to Indianapolis. Do you know what absconded means?
0: So they, they escaped too
1: yes so they
0: now that's
1: isn't it it's like an onion with all these layers so we've got this couple in Nevada they have escaped from um prison now the woman that I read the first one that I read about she didn't escape until 2008 so I'm rewinding eight years is this too confusing
0: yeah no now now it's starting to kind of make sense that that one about Miss Pender was in 2008.
1: Right. So I'm going to tell you why she's in prison because what, but we have to rewind to 2000. So these two, these two have not, they don't know Sarah Pender yet. Trisha Norman and Drew Cataldi, they sneak out of some sort of correctional facility in Carson City. And I couldn't figure out exactly what kind it was. Like, I don't know if it's a co ed facility, I'm guessing, or if it was like a waiting area before they went to prison or, Or if it was like a work release type place where you just come on and leave. But they they just like walked out and went to Indianapolis. When they got to Indianapolis, they met a guy named Rick Hull. And I'm guessing most likely they met him at a bar because he worked as a bouncer.
0: Okay, big security guard.
1: Yeah, he was a, I mean, he was a big old corn fed Indiana boy. And in his high school days, he was a football star. You know, he's like the big old uh he was probably on the O-line, you know. Okay. I mean, big old. Like, how big would you say somebody on the O-line is?
0: Um, At least 250, 6'5". Yeah, I think he was about that.
1: 6'2 yeah. or 6'3 and around 250. Just a big old guy, you know. And he, when he graduated, you know, he was a football star, but he was kind of like a partier and he got into trouble He actually, after he uh, graduated from high school, he turned to a life of crime and drugs. By the time he was 21, he had already achieved two felonies, one for auto theft and another for residential entry. And I'm not sure, like that's, if I'd look that up, residential entry isn't like home invasion.
0: But maybe you were in somebody's house that you shouldn't have been in.
1: Right, but would that be a felony? I mean, I guess, yeah. Uh, He also had six mis misdemeanor i read somewhere it was 12 and then i read somewhere it was six so i'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt it doesn't matter anyway so in 2000 he met a girl sarah pender at a fish concert oh fish yeah and they fell in love so you want to tell us about
0: fish um fish is definitely uh a more known as like a druggy band a um, druggy
1: bend. band.
0: band Oh, a band. Okay. Yeah, like uh, they have a bunch of followers that follow them to. Are every they show like? They
1: play. Uh, are they like punk? Are they like a Grateful Dead kind uh, yeah, of sound?
0: Yeah, they're definitely a, a Grateful Dead jam band sound. Um, I mean, they're all right.
1: Okay. Are they still around?
0: Yeah, they definitely still play shows every once in a while. I actually,
1: I actually knew a girl who followed Fish, and yeah, she lives in California someplace right now.
0: No. That was obviously a generalized statement. I'm not saying every fish fan is a druggie, but, well, you know, it's kind of sure. got that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it has that vibe. I mean, that's what people do that that follow them without saying they all do. A lot of them do. All right. Well, there's a blogger named Ashley Blumenthal, and she wrote about Sarah Pender and Rick Hole. And she said that they kind of had a, whirl- a whirlwind romance and that they had already shacked up together within a month she was had been an honor student in high school she was 21 and she did go to purdue university for a year and she wanted to be some sort of uh, chemical engineer or something i can't remember but it was something pretty you know pretty you had to be pretty smart to get in a program like that
0: oh yeah definitely
1: she dropped out uh, without I think even before the year was up she, just because she wanted to go to work and party and you know what that's like she definitely did, uh, she did get a pretty good job she worked as a secretary for a restoration company in Indianapolis so it was like a, you know Monday through Friday 40 hour week job and her boyfriend Rick he was a bouncer like I said he also was a drug dealer they had a great relationship they really had a good time together after a month of living together Rick asked Sarah if you know, if she would mind if they had a couple of people move in with them as roommates. So remember our Nevada fugitives,
0: Miss Trisha and Mister Drew.
1: Yep. So they end up moving in. Sarah agreed. Um, according to her family, she and Trisha became pretty good friends. So in August, they were all living together in the same house. Their house on South Michael had a basement, and most, if I remember, Indianapolis like most houses had a basement ours didn't but a lot of houses did and they were creepy a f man
0: yeah old basements yeah, are
1: old anyway now i can imagine these dudes just sitting around complaining about how much money they're making for some other guy when they had their own basement and you know i mean wouldn't that lead to the thinking like oh i have a basement why don't we just make our own meth lab? We can just make our own meth, hire a chemist, have a guy from Las Vegas come out here. He can uh, create the lab and make the drug in the basement. and We cut out that middleman.
0: Yeah, uh, if we've, we've all seen Breaking Bad. We know yeah. how that goes. Yeah.
1: This was in 2000. I wonder when Breaking Bad came out, came out after this, I think. Early, uh, maybe the mid 2000s, 2010-ish, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, so this is their plan. They already sold drugs out of their home. This would just be another way to uh, maximize their profit. So while all this planning and drug dealing is going on, the honeymoon phase of these roommates is also kind of cooling fast. Constant little bickering here and there. Um, Drew and Rick are are constantly arguing about money or, you know, um, clients are fighting all the time. And supposedly Sarah told Rick that she needed, that he needed to do something about Drew on October 23rd, uh, Rick Hole drove back home to Noblesville, Indiana, and borrowed one of his good friend's pickup trucks. He told his friends like, yeah, I'm going to use them to haul some junk out of my basement. So, you know, I can get ready for my, my, you know, meth lab.
0: Yeah. My chef. Yeah. Someone to cook it up.
1: That's right. So... Also um, on October 24th, Sarah and Rick got up really early in the morning and went to Walmart and they went to the sporting goods section. The two had a conversation with a sporting goods clerk about the shotguns that they had in stock. Sarah ended up purchasing um, a Mossberg shotgun that morning and Hull was with her. He went to uh, uh, a shelf and pulled a box of deer slug shotgun shells off the shelf brought to the counter where Sarah paid for the shotgun shells and the rifle now do you know why he didn't just buy it himself uh,
0: because then he would be tied to the weapon mm-hmm. so
1: he has two felonies when you have a felony you can't buy firearms and I don't I don't know if that's uh, like uh, I don't think it's a federal law but I know here in Florida it's you can't, you can't own a you can't own a weapon when you have felonies
0: Yeah, no, I was just jumping to conclusion, but that makes way sense. Yeah, no, but that
1: does, that would make sense too. All right, so after, sometime after that, they ended up meeting with Sarah's parents for a few hours for some sort of dinner party or family gathering. And that lasted until about 10, 30 or 11. When they got home, drew supposedly started bitching at Hull immediately and sarah didn't want to be around for that argument so she said that she left and this is what she's telling police later that she didn't want to be around for the argument so she left she went to go get cigarettes and take a walk so things could cool down inside and apparently while she was gone her boyfriend murdered drew Cataldi and trisha nordman
0: oh so she had nothing to do with it
1: right this is what she said happened and he even said that this happened so when she returned she said that she found rick loading up a body into the pickup truck the one that he had borrowed from his high school friend and she said that out of fear later she said out of fear I went along with Rick. I helped him load up uh, Trisha's body. I helped him then dump the bodies a few blocks away from where they lived. She said that they then drove to Anderson, Indiana, and they rented a hotel room for the night.
0: So their first mistake was definitely dumping the bodies a few blocks from their home.
1: In a dumpster, right? Yeah,
0: like, I mean.
1: I mean, I don't think that's their first mistake, but that's definitely a big one
0: yeah like especially if you wanted to get away with it but
1: yeah i'm not yeah i'm not real sure what the motive is here like i but don't you, know if it was know, like yeah like do you like i don't know if it was planned they did go and they bought a gun and um, bought the weapons or the the ammunition but i don't know if they
0: yeah if it intended was intended for-
1: to go home and kill that person that night but i do know is that they did stay in a hotel room they didn't stay at the house that night sarah ended up going to work the next day and like she went to work and it was just a normal day nobody said she acted weird or anything now while she was at work rick went back to the house you know to clean up the murder mess you know when you blast a person in the chest with a shotgun oh i didn't mean to tell you that so so quickly but i will say that i'm sure it was a bloody mess
0: yeah of course
1: um what we do know is that he had a carpet shampooer, but he didn't have the right plug had to go. <laughs> yeah. He had to go ask his neighbor to lend him a plug adapter so that he could shampoo his carpets. He's, so like, now, hey, yeah, hey he's like, yeah, he's like, shampoo my carpet. You have a plug adapter. I mean, this guy doesn't have a whole lot of brains. He must have been I mean, hit. He may yeah, hit too many hits in football.
0: Or, I mean, methamphetamine. Is-
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were all meth addicts. It's like, and then they were, you know, they were tripping on acid and other things. So, all right, right. around 6 p.m. uh, Later that day, uh, the next day, Steven Stoltz discovered two bodies in a dumpster at the back of the union hall where he worked. The male had been shot in the chest and the female was shot in the chest and in the head. And they were both, they were all three shotgun, you know, shotgun wounds. The two had been tossed in the dumpster like trash. They had no ID. Police didn't have anything to go on, so they're like, "Look, I know. We'll just uh, release pictures of you know their sketches and of their unique tattoos." Back in the uh, that early, like tattoos weren't as prolific. Like they weren't as uh, like everybody didn't have them like they do now. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah,
0: yeah, I feel that.
1: So you know, it was easier for somebody to stand out if they had a lot of tattoos back then or unique tattoos. So almost immediately after the media aired these, they started getting calls. A couple of interesting calls was a um, a person called saying that, uh, they, that it was a neighbor of the two and she identified the individuals as Drew Cataldi and Trisha Norman. And she also said that their roommates, they shared a, a house with two other roommates, and sh- she gave them the name Rick and Sarah Pender. So of course, detectives immediately have suspects, and they go to the address, but no one's there. So they do the next be- best thing, you know, like Law and Order style, and they canvass the neighborhood, and they get a lot of good information from their neighbors. So one neighbor told them that, yeah, there had been a there had been a pickup truck parked at the house a couple of days ago. But no one there who lives there owns a pickup truck. Uh, Another guy said, yeah, it was about three o'clock in the morning and I happened to look out my window and I saw two large people. One was larger than the other and they were covering, it looked like they were covering the bed of the pickup truck that was parked in front of the house. So of course, automatically the roommates are people of interest. The witness was unable to distinguish either the race or the gender of the individuals, but later it was proven that Sarah and Richard were Rick were the ones that the guy saw. Uh, other neighbors said that they always heard a lot of arguments between Hole and Cataldi and even some of Sarah's coworkers said that she complained about her roommates. And then the neighbor who said, sh- the neighbor came forward and said, oh yeah, you know, he needed to clean his carpets. That's not suspicious.
0: No, he, he came and asked for the cord.
1: Yeah, so that's a major red flag, right?
0: Yeah, So, definitely. of course-
1: you know, I always thought you would make a good police detective. Anyway, the detectives went into action and they secured a search warrant for the house that the four shared and they go in there and they find a large amount of blood at the scene. It was obvious that someone had tried to clean it up, like, you know, maybe with a sh- carpet shampooer. That blood later DNA al- um, analysis showed that it belonged to Trisha Nordman. Neither Hull nor Pender could be located for questioning and it as it turns out, Pender like i said had gone to work and Hull had gone back to noblesville you know he's returning the truck he also burnt his clothes and shoes except for he forgot a crucial piece of clothing his pants oh yeah um those get turned over later by her when investigators learned that rick hole jr was from noblesville they contacted the noblesville law enforcement leo for assistance and they find Hull. they find out that Hall rented a nearby hotel room And, but he, um, he wasn't at his hotel room. He was at his mama's house.
0: Oh my goodness. Yeah.
1: So, um, he was arrested or taken from there without incident and transported to Indianapolis. So when he was questioned in the early morning of October 27th, he told them he didn't know what happened to his roommate, but he quickly changed his tune when detectives presented him with all the evidence they had. It was a lot. First. They knew he had a, borrowed a pickup truck from his friend, Ronnie Heron, on October 23rd, 2000, but even more than that, they found blood in the back of the truck that they proved belonged to Drew and Trisha. Um, they also advised Hole that they found the receipt to the shotgun and the shotgun shells, and they had the witness that that clerk and of course that m- murder weapon was the one they found in the hotel room so like I said when presented with all this evidence Rick Hull changed his story so now he's going to tell a different story now first he wasn't there he didn't have anything to do with it now he said that he had to kill Drew and Trisha in self-defense he said that he and Drew got into a huge argument because Drew kept bringing up Hull's sister Tabitha, who owed Drew money. Hull said that Cataldi knew he had just bought the Mossberg shotgun, and he got up and went into Hull's room and grabbed the shotgun. They got in a struggle, and Hull told the detectives he was going to he was going to kill my fucking family. And all of a sudden, the shotgun went off, and then he ended up shooting Trisha twice. And he said, well, I shot her twice because she didn't die after the first bullet.
0: Oh my goodness. Yeah. This guy is just.
1: Yeah. And then again, like I said, she ended up turning over a pair of pants that he was wearing that were splattered, spattered with blood. And it did have blood on it that was proven to be Drew. So, I mean, the evidence is o- overwhelming against him and he does confess to both murders. So there's no trial. He does get a sentencing trial, but, um, you know, they don't, They don't have to prove him guilty. He's already admitted to guilt, but Sarah Pender did not confess, you know, her story never really changed. She did add that, you know, she didn't leave on her own. Rick told her to leave. He said, this is going to get ugly, but basically she said the story, she never changed her story that she left. And when she came back, he was loading the truck. She just helped him finish loading it. And she just helped him dump the bodies. She said that she was also really upset because, I mean, who wants to come out to blood and guts all over the place? It's very disturbing.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, she really said that. How dare he?
1: I know. And it's like, really, girl? You're, I mean, these people who you say are your friends are dead now. Anyway, due to all this and the fact that she did not call the police, she was charged with two counts of first degree murder and her trial began in July, 2002. Sarah Pender went on trial at Marion Superior Court in July, 2002. Larry Sells was the prosecutor and he is a really tough prosecutor. Like he believes, you know, convict, convict them and put him to death. He told the jury and he really, you know, made her seem like a really evil person. He told the jury that Sarah Pender, not Rick Hull, was the criminal mastermind in this case. He presented well, evidence to the sh- what?
0: Well, you do know behind every good man is a woman who pushes him, right? But
1: yeah, it's kind of like Macbeth. Oh, have you ever have you ever read Macbeth?
0: I I have not. We're seeing the movie? Okay. not. All right.
1: It's, um, about, a uh, he's a Duke or something and, um, his wife is pressuring him to kill the King so he can take power, Yeah, huh. interesting analysis there. This guy, Larry Sells, I mean, he goes, he goes after her hard. He says, Rick Hall's not the criminal mastermind. She is. He presented evidence to the jury. Uh, he said, Pinner purchased the shotgun and the ammo on the morning of the murders. He, she told him that he had to do something about Drew and she helped him dispose of the bodies. She, Sells told the jury, had manipulated Hull into committing the murders. And according to the Indianapolis Star, Sells likened her influence over Hull to the control Manson had over her follow, his followers who committed a string of murders in 1969. So this guy is telling the jury that this girl was like Charles, had a Charles Manson, like
0: hold on hold. Yeah. And that she's some kind of like mastermind.
1: Right. That she's some mastermind manipulator, which we can't forget that because that's going to come back later. All right. So Sells told the jury also that not only did she uh, purchase the murder weapons, but she also admitted to the killings in a letter that she wrote to her boyfriend, Rick Holt. Now I um, I do want to point out that she's had a couple of relationships in jail while she's awaiting her trial. She's um, has an ongoing affair with a woman named Jamie Long, who's also in there. And then later on, she'll have uh, relations with a an inmate that she meets.
0: Oh, so she's not really the the faithful type, or uh, really I think you know,
1: girls just want to have fun. They're type, you know? I don't know.
0: Okay. All right.
1: I'm not sure. So apparently, so supposedly she wrote this letter and this is just one little section. It's a long letter and you can find it on the internet. Um, But it's one part said, I wish I could go back and change the events of that night. Drew was so mean that night. I just snapped. I didn't mean to kill him. It must've been the acid. When you said you would try to take the blame, I knew then that you loved me deeply. At first I thought you would tell, but you stuck to your promise. And then she ended it with destroy this. So the state read, had her read the letter or had, no, she didn't even get on stand, but somebody read the letter, the de- I'm sorry, the prosecution presented this letter. And then they called to the stand a forensic document examiner, Leanne Harmless, who testified that the letter had been written by Pender, that it was her handwriting. Now the defense attorney, James Nava, her attorney's like, no, that's a fake. Uh, she is no criminal mastermind obviously this was not a criminally masterminded plan murder it was an act of the moment it was sloppily cleaned up he went around told people he was going to shampoo the carpet and stuff i mean there was nothing mastermind about it
0: yeah um, there was no plan or anything like, yeah
1: and yeah and he right and he also said that Hull had shot drew and norman because they were about to cut him out of a big drug deal i don't know if that's true or not but that's what that's what it, I found in court documents, but there's more because the prosecutor then called inmate Floyd Pennington to the stand. Now for the last several months, Floyd Pennington and Sarah Jo Pender had been having a very steamy pen pal relationship and Pennington decided to use this to his own advantage. So apparently the two met somehow in the, in this correctional facility and, had a conversation and they decided they were going to write each other. It it was sneaky how she was sending letters out. Like she was sending letters to her sister or somebody on the outside who was then mailing them to the prisoners.
0: That is so slimy.
1: Isn't it? So, you know, like next week I'm going to talk about there's uh, friends of Sarah Pender and free Sarah Pender. And, you know, but there are so many things that make me feel like she is manipulative. And this is one of them but I have to remember she was only 21 at the time too.
0: Yeah. And like, I mean, if it, if she really did just go for a walk and came back to that, you know, like maybe she was just an accessory, but
1: right. Does she deserve, which we're going to get to because we haven't even finished yet. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I can see where you're going with that. All right. So anyway, this Floyd, this Floyd Pennington, he is about to go to prison. He's a habitual offender and a violent felon. So, you know, he's just, he's awaiting his sentencing on robbery. And so he's just looking for, he's looking for a way to shorten his sentence or, you know, to be a snitch, right? Um, He also has a fear of prison because he's already been to prison for five years for a 1989 child molestation charge
0: and we all know what happens when you do that
1: right um well he he lived to tell it but um so anyway he meets sarah pender and then he decides hmm, i might be able to do something with these letters that she's sending me so he calls a detective on the case kenneth martinez and he says look i can have pender admit to me her responsibility for these murders Um, We have this, uh, we have written over 75 letters back and forth to each other. We have a long distance love relationship. I can make her take the next step and meet me and tell me what, what really happened that night. So after meeting with Martinez, Pennington ends up writing to Sarah Pender with a plan and he says, okay, on September 22nd, you need to fake a very serious illness so that the prison officials will send you to Wishard Hospital for treatment. And so she did. And he faked a kidney problem on the same day and was also sent there. Now, a few days after they met at the hospital, September 28th, Pennington ends up giving a statement to the detective. And he said that Pender spent three to four um, hours with him at the hospital and that they were left alone for half an hour. And that's when Pender told him, that she's the one who planned the double homicide and she coerced Hull to kill both Drew and Nordman. He also told the detective that she admitted to being home at the time of the murders, not out for a walk. So, this guy's testimony, along with the letter that she supposedly wrote to Hull, was damaging to her. And on August 22nd, 2002, she was found guilty of double first degree homicide and she was sentenced. To 110 years in prison
0: oh my
1: now I don't know this well this Floyd Pennington this story is going to come back later Richard Hull pleaded guilty to avoid trial his line of defense was that he had been influenced by Sarah Pender at the time of the murder so that's when he produced that letter saying that she's the one that killed him um, and he was given a 130 year sentence the story is not over but, you know, it's like I said, it's like an onion. It's thick and deep. And there's so much more to tell that this is where I'm going to stop for next for this week.
0: Well, I definitely have to stay tuned. Hopefully you'll have me back for this. Yes, next episode because you
1: have got to you've got to check this girl out because I don't know. I don't know.
0: I mean, we haven't even gotten to uh, where she escapes yet, have we really? Nope,
1: we have not.
0: So that's... uh, And that
1: is such an interesting story. Uh, Yeah. Yep. So be sure to tune in next week.
0: All righty, guys. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week. We appreciate you sharing our passion with us. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We appreciate sharing our passion with you. And we thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us even further, please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star rating and a comment. Your subscription and ratings are essential to our success. You can do this on your favorite platforms. For more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, visit our website at ItWasn'tMeTrueCrime.com.
1: Also, please remember, recommend It Wasn't Me to your true crime-loving friends and family. And thank you to our Patreon supporters. You are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash It Wasn't Me pod. And Chaz, thanks so much for jumping in this week. You know, I might have to count on you again, our Cindy sweet girl. We'll see you guys soon. Thanks again. And remember, It Wasn't Me.
0: It Wasn't Me. All right. I'm gonna All suck. right. Yeah. All right, mama. That was a good
1: one. All right, love ya.